This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Professor David Lindenmeyer, a prominent ecologist and conservationist from the Fenner School of Environment and Society at ANU, joined me on the phone to talk about the Victorian government's major announcement to stop logging old growth forests in Victoria and to slowly transition away from logging native forests over the next 10 years. Then, musician and storyteller Karis Thompson joined me in the studio to talk about his new album, Shakespeare Avenue, and the social, political and personal themes that his songs are about. He played a few songs for us, including his latest single, Ship to Come In, which is all about combating gender inequality. Then, finally... Climate scientist Professor Leslie Hughes, who is also a distinguished professor of biology and a former lead author of the IPCC assessment reports 4 and 5, joined me to talk about the challenges of climate change that Australia uniquely faces, including the links between climate change, drought and bushfire. I'm so delighted that I'm going to be speaking with Professor David Lindenmeyer. So let me, uh, without further ado, introduce him. Professor David Lindenmeyer is uh, based at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU, and he's a, a leading ecologist and conservationist and scientist. And on this show, I have spoken with David twice before, and it's always been an exceptionally valuable uh, discussion because he's spent a huge proportion of his working life uh, studying the forests of the Central High islands among other ecosystems and he is really the expert on native forests in Australia and has certainly also been a great advocate for these ecosystems and forests and the species that reside in them and so the reason why we're going to launch into a chat is because of the Victorian government's announcement um, just under a week ago around the native forests in Victoria that are of Obviously, publicly owned forests that have been logged uh, for a very long time by Vic Forests, a state-owned company. And uh, there have been obviously calls for, from a very long time from advocates to halt logging, native forest logging, and move to plantation forests. And certainly that is a really realistic goal. And uh, the announcement that we finally heard from the Victorian government was that they would immediately halt logging of old growth forests in Victoria and they would set a certain number of hectares that would be protected and wouldn't be able to be logged and then that they would transition away from native forest logging over the next basically 10 years, um, which I think for many is too long to wait. But uh, we'll get into the detail right now and I welcome Professor David Lindenmeyer to the show and thank you so much, David, for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Amy. It's really great to check in with you on this uh, big announcement. Certainly the headline looks quite appealing and I know that a lot of people will feel like um, they have been advocating f- on this issue forever and thought that perhaps we would never see a breakthrough. What, um, first of all, did the Victorian government essentially announce in terms of the details of this plan and change of policy? Well, I, I think there's a number of important elements to this. So, so the first one is, and, and this is critically important, 
the, the stark reality in Victoria is that there's very little saw log resource left. It's been extensively burnt or extensively over-harvested or both across many ecosystems in the state. So the industry really doesn't have anywhere to go. And in fact, in the last three months, three very important logging contractor crews have actually shut down. And they know that it's not economic to continue to harvest like the way they have been in the past. Now, the reason that this has been taking place is that most of the harvesting has actually been focused in places such as um, uh, flatter country, which is most productive, where you get the most hogs. Now what's left is the steep and rocky country where almost everything that comes out of the forest is pulp. Now, the reason that's important is that a logging contractor can't survive if they're logging pulp alone. What they actually need to, to be able to do is also have some soil log resource. So the industry is in a state of terminal decline. That's absolutely critical. So the announcement by the state government that the industry is going to close by 2030 is, is really an indication that the industry doesn't have anywhere to go. In fact, 90% of the industry now, in terms of employment and in terms of value, is, is in the plantation sector, and that's where we need to be investing. That's where we need to be creating jobs, and we can do that in 10 years. I'm um, also reminded of our previous chats when we were talking about old growth and what old growth actually means because the definition of old growth trees um, in in this context of logging has changed over time uh, to benefit certainly the logging industry. And I'm wondering when we talk about the fact that old growth logging will halt immediately, what that actually really means given that you've just mentioned there's such limited amount left okay so the concept of old growth varies depending on on what sort of forest you're looking at and where you are in victoria so the the cessation of, of old growth logging is a really positive outcome and it really does make a big difference in places like east gippsland where there has been old growth logging in the past the reality is central highlands is that old growth forest is now very rare. In fact, old growth hasn't been logged since the 1990s, or at least I should qualify that. Old growth forest in patches greater than five hectares hasn't been logged. If patches of old growth are smaller than that, then they can be logged. So the cessation of old growth logging in the central highlands is kind of um, a, a bit moose because old growth mountain ash now comprises only 1.16% of the, the forest estates. And in alpine ash, it's only 047 of 1%. So the decision not to log old-growth forests is pretty, pretty easy to do because there isn't any there. What's really been happening in the last 20 to 30 to 40 years is that almost all of the logging has been concentrated around the 1939 fire regrowth forests. So these are forests that are now 80 years old. And our analysis shows that under the timber release plan, those areas of 1939 regrowth forests that are going to be cut are actually really significant for biodiversity. They're high conservation value forests. And that means that they're important for the 70 threatened species of forest-dependent animals in the Victorian forest. So the reality is that logging in the next 10 years is going to have really significant negative impacts on a whole range of species. Radar gliders, 
uh, yellow belly gliders, Leadbeater's possums. In fact, our most recent analysis, which I'm actually sitting in front of right now, literally, shows that the more of the landscape that's logged, the bigger the negative effect on animals like Leadbeater's possum and the greater glider. So really what needs to happen here is that the, the Victorian government needs to get a native forest and very quickly to reduce the impacts on those species. Indeed, and it's certainly been front of centre uh, in terms of the government being aware that Leadbeater's possums and the greater glider in particular are absolutely threatened by logging. And certainly a number of citizen scientists and scientists have been conducting surveys of um, areas about to be logged and that those that have been logged to see how um, predominant these species are now. In terms of the central highlands and uh, the old growth trees and the hollow bearing trees in particular, where are we at with the, the threatened species in that particular forest ecosystem? Okay, so if we look at the central highlands, because that's system that's been studied most for the longest. So the the, uh, the data are really quite stark. So for Leadbeater's possum, there's been a 50% decline in what we call site occupancy. So this is this is a metric of whether an animal still persists at a site. So that's been hard in the last 20 years. In the case of the greater glider, site occupancy has declined 80% in the last 20 years. So this is a, an absolutely striking decline. But we also know that the greater glider has declined in parts of East Gippsland. It's documented in places like the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney. We also know that the greater glider has gone extinct in places such as Goodaree National Park. So there's a widespread decline right across the board for that species. But it's clearly most pronounced in the wood production forests like in the Central Highlands. In terms of the high tree resource, that has also halved in the last 20 years. So there's a very strong relationship between the decline of hollow trees and the decline of, of these hollow-dependent animals like the greater glider and Leadbeater's possum. And so um, when we're thinking about Victoria's forests and the state basically industry of logging in this um, this state. What um, What's the health of that industry? Because a lot of people um, have said that really it's not sustainable as an industry. It hasn't been profitable. And in fact, uh, that Vic Forests, although they posted a very, very small um, profit before tax of $4 million, uh, in the last financial year, they would have made a loss of almost $7 million if it wasn't for the government paying them $11 million in other payments not to log the possum's habitat. So in terms of the arguments from different communities and the unions around um, this forest industry being kind of important to Victoria, what is the, the actual reality um, of the native forest logging industry in this state? So the, the reality is, is um, very different than what people like the Premier and the, um, the head of the CFMMCU want to say. So we know that the, the total employment in terms of direct jobs is around about 300 people statewide. And of that 300, that includes approximately 100 people in big forests. So it's not a big industry. We know that in East Gippsland, it's been demonstrably unprofitable to continue to log the forest for the last 10 years. 
that's in Vic Forest's own um, corporate business statements, uh, Major Cabinet. We know that there's been a roughly 25% decline in the number of, total number of employees in the native forest industry over the last five years. And we also know that essentially Vic Forest is totally unprofitable except for the subsidies that it gets from other, other state government departments. That's not including the, the virtually no interest loans that Vic Forest has to take out to, to build roads into these logging areas. And as, as the forest becomes steeper and, and more inaccessible, where you go to harvest your timber, the more it costs to build roads to get into those kinds of places so that the, the subsidy that has to come from the public actually increases. So the reality is that this is an industry that's costing taxpayers a lot of money to continue to, to, um, to harvest its forests, when in fact really the economics of this points towards needing to focus on where you get the best and highest value for your natural energy. So the best and highest value for native forests now is for water production, it's for tourism and carbon storage if we move to a carbon market. And the best and highest value for our plantations is wood production. And so, I mean, you just mentioned their tourism and the importance of other industries and certainly uh, people in the last state election raised a little bit of a contradiction in policies whereby the Andrews government was logging the East Gippsland forests and at the same time they had announced that they would build all this great new infrastructure including um, footbridges for people to actually hike through uh, these beautiful old growth forests. Um, in terms of that area and the Central Highlands, they've both been slated as being very important attractions for Victorians and others who love nature. Um, what what is what's the status of the East Gippsland forest like? And I mean, is it? I mean, I feel like I'm asking a bleedingly obvious question, but it seems like it's counterintuitive to be logging um, such a, a pristine area that has been, in some cases, largely untouched. Well, I'm not as well qualified to speak about what's happening in East Gippsland, other than we know economically that for every year for the last 10 years, uh, it's been non-commercial. It's non-economic continue harvesting those forests. So that's, that's really insanely silly. That's, that's voodoo economics to keep doing that. And yes, it does cut across the value of kind of assets for things like the tourism industry. So we, we know coming back to the Central Highlands, because it's the area I know best, we know that whilst there's about 300 people employed statewide in the native forest industry and 70% of all the harvesting takes place in the Central Highlands, Three and, and roughly 300 statewide, we're dealing with 3,700 tourism-related jobs in that Central Highlands region alone. So the, the employment is, is roughly 10 to 1 in terms of direct jobs. So we can see that economically this no longer makes any sense. But also socially it doesn't make any sense because the number of people employed in the respective industry is massively different and it's an order of magnitude difference. So, again, if you come back to the economics of this, you wouldn't keep doing what you're doing now. You would actually phase it out much more quickly. And the, the other reason for doing this is that because the industry is in terminal decline and because there are contractors leaving, 
so quickly now, it's very important for the state government to step in and help transition those people to other jobs. It's socially unjust not to do that, and it's economically better off to do those transitions earlier, cost the taxpayer less, and the transitions tend to be more successful. We've seen that in other industries like the fishing industry, where there's an early intervention, things tend to end up in a much better space. Indeed, and um, I'm also interested in the um, the kind of things that you've mentioned in previous lectures and discussions around the effect of logging on um, other trees in the area, and uh, you've previously spoken about um, the fact that when you log, particularly um, any kind of trees really, but it. It's about the landscape context effect whereby the more a land is harvested, the more likely the older trees will collapse. Um, have you seen instances of this in the Central Highlands? Yeah, so in 2018, last year, we published a paper that, that looked at, at the, the status of the trees on our long-term monitoring sites. So we have pretty close to 180 long-term sites which are not harvested. They're actually exempt from harvesting across across the Central Highlands region. But what we've seen is the landscape changed dramatically over the last 20 years in terms of the, the amount of cut blocks that are in the system. So these are the number of blocks. And there's a very strong relationship between the rate of fall of trees on these unharvested monitoring sites and the amount of forest that's harvested in the surrounding landscape. So the more forest that's cut, the faster the big old trees fall down. And now we're actually able to show that the more the forest is cut in the landscape, the more quickly we lose animals on these long-term sites as well. So as the landscape changes, it changes even the bits of forest that aren't harvested. So there's a direct landscape context effect as the changing landscape is essentially more and more harvested. And that's why the timber release plan over the next 10 years to continue harvesting will actually have a devastating effect, not only the, on the rate of collapse of the big trees, but also directly on the biodiversity itself. Yes, and um, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of that really scary um, issue. It seems like there are a number of indirect consequences of logging non-old growth trees. And um, I certainly have seen um, even your talk at the Royal um, Society of Victoria, which was part of a, a number of talks when the government was considering the new regional forest agreements. And surely this is the information that they've already received from scientists and people in the community and um, is something that they would be well aware of. Exactly. It's not as if the information that, that we produce uh, is, is hidden away and people can't find it. We, we produce fact sheets as well as scientific papers. We give regular letters. Every time we publish a scientific article, a paper copy of that scientific article uh, is sent by snail mail with an accompanying letter to the Premier, to the Environment Minister, to the Forestry Minister, to the Special Minister of State, to the Water Minister, explaining what the latest results show. So Leadbeater's possum is probably one of the most extensively studied, heavily studied, critically endangered species anywhere. So it's not through a lack of information. 
it's actually through literally decades of poor forest management policy that we find us find ourselves in this state. And we need to do that because if we look on the other side of the fence, the most successful forest industry in Victoria by far is the plantation sector. But what we're stupidly doing at the moment is exporting about 75% of all the plantation eucalypt pulp logs overseas as raw logs or wood chips. And if we process even a a percentage of that, you know, 10 or 15, 20, 30 percent of that material, we can actually increase the number of jobs in the forest industry. We provide certainty of access to resource, so we've got resource security. We don't have to bugger up the water supply for the city of Melbourne. We don't have to mess up uh, biodiversity outcomes for animals like Medvedus Fossil. And actually have a win-win outcome here, a win for the environment and a win for the economy and a win for jobs. It just needs some sensible policy to be made straight away to realise those kinds of things rather than continue to flog this dead horse. Calling this a far-lap industry and flogging a dead horse because it's, it's really nonsensical in terms of policy now. The government's given an indication of what it needs to do, needs to get out of native forests. Ten years is a long way away. We can do a lot of damage in that time and there may well be a change of government which continues the carnage in the forest. We don't need to keep doing this. This is really very silly. Yes, well, I was quite shocked to see the 10-year time frame because it's not like the writing hasn't been on the wall for a very long time. Um, I am interested to hear more about your recent research that uncovered um, soil issues due to fire from logging, but also from bushfires, which of course is very topical at the moment. And uh, with a looming, very dangerous fire season ahead of us, I was interested to hear that um, you've discovered that forest soils need a lot longer to recover from any kind of fire um, than we had previously assumed. Could you share with us those um, findings? Yeah, so this is work led by by uh, one of our truly outstanding PhD students, it's Elle Bowd. And Elle's gone to uh, roughly 80 long-term sites across the Central Highlands and taken soil cores at different depths in the forest and then gone back to to look at uh, soil nutrients, soil composition, um, but also all the soil DNA as well. It's really quite an amazing set of studies. She's truly a stellar, a stellar student. And what she's found is that the signal for past fires and past logging operations last for at least 80 years in, in, the, in the system. So you can see the forest that's been logged or burnt has dramatically reduced soil carbon, uh, altered soil composition, so there's a lot more sand in, in the... And these, last, these effects are, are lasting many, many more decades longer than we had any idea was likely to be the case. And so this really has significant impact, likely to be on growth rate and a whole bunch of other things that are, that are just beginning to emerge. And in fact, Hell's most recent work is starting to suggest that perhaps the effects of disturbances such as fire and logging are more pronounced under the, the, the surface than they are above the ground. And uh, that's really quite a shock. And um, so there's some more work to do in that space, but uh, quite unexpected, but also quite profound in terms of these disturbance impacts. 
But yeah, it's uh, that's really disturbing and um, it sounds like it's really impactful research. Um, I'm interested also in the research you highlighted or flagged that hadn't yet been published that showed there was also a significant decline in birds in these forests and um, they're often the species or the the, the kind of living creatures that we might forget because they're not necessarily in our line of sight but if anyone goes to the central highlands they will hear an amazing chorus of bird song and I'm really keen to find out how the bird species are currently going in the central highlands. Okay so that, the work on birds has just been published in the last couple of weeks uh, in a journal called Ecological Applications. And essentially what we were looking at was um, how, how are bird species responding to... Uh, how are they changing over time? How are they responding to fire? And how are they responding to logging in the landscape? So, that, so there's some interesting things happening. The data suggests that roughly half of the, the bird species in the forest system are declining and declining quite significantly. The second thing that, that happens is, is that Almost all of the bird species, there are a few exceptions, but almost all of the bird species are most strongly associated with old forest. So regrowth forests, particularly young regrowth forests, but also advanced regrowth forests like 80-year-old stands, have significantly less bird species and significantly fewer individuals of the birds in the system relative to old growth. The third thing that happens is that when the landscape is burnt, we get fewer birds across the landscape. So the recurrent fires that we've been having are not, not a good outcome for most bird species. But the other thing that was surprising was that as more of the forest is logged in the landscape, our long-term sites get more species, not less. And what we think there is happening is that the landscape becomes more and more unsuitable in the, in the, uh, across the forest, what's happening is that birds are moving more and more into the remaining unharvested bits. So it's kind of like a spillover mm. or a refugee process where birds are moving away from where they, where they normally would have inhabited the forest. So that's, that's a bit different than what we see with possums and gliders and with big trees. But it's still an effect of, of how much the forest is changing and how really this is quite unsustainable in terms of, of being able to support viable populations of birds and mammals in, in these amazing systems. Yes, and it reminds me when you're talking there about habitat changes and movement of species that um, there were and have been a number of people, perhaps even yourself, who were looking at creating artificial hollows or artificial um, structures in those trees to attract or um, shelter different species like the Leadbeater's possum and the greater glider uh, when there is not enough old hollows uh, left obviously, given that old growth forests um, have been in decline and are really a small number um, in terms of the total uh, left of native forest vegetation and trees in uh, the central highlands and beyond. I'm wondering how successful initiatives like that have actually been and whether they can help the situation or whether really um, the we need to be slight, more absolute and more um, careful when it comes to removing hollow-bearing trees? 
So there's a few things that are important in, the con- in this context. The, the reality is that very few hollow trees are actually knocked over now um, directly as a, as a consequence of logging operations. But what tends to happen is that the high-intensity fires after logging operations tends to, to barbecue those trees. So they're almost always destroyed or because of isolation. Those trees are much more likely to blow down after the logging operations. So that's, that's a really important outcome. Often it's an indirect effect of harvesting that leads to the loss of those trees. I think the broader view here is that it really is nonsensical to spend so much time and so much effort trying to put artificial hollows and, and sculpt, sculpt the, um, new hollows in trees and existing trees. Same time as we're knocking down other bits of forest, which will be the next cohorts of old trees. That's really, that's really crazy. You know, it's, we need to be having a, an ongoing assembly line of new trees coming into the system that can become hollow-bearing trees. But the more we cut the forest, the less that happens. So that's, that's really dark policy to spend so much time trying to get these hollows into the system when at the same time you're also cutting them down. And this, this is the, the fallacy of having to pay big forests large amounts of money not to cut, cut the trees down. As, as uh, you know, it's, big forest makes a profit of $2 million only because the state government gave them $11 million not to cut down the forest. They shouldn't be there at all now. It's, a, it's, it's an insanely silly sort of economic situation that we've got into as a consequence of a couple of decades of really poor policy. Yes. So having made mess in the forest, yes, there's some value in putting up nest boxes. Yes, there's some value for carving hollows in trees. But, um, you know, we've got to look at the broader issue, and that is that we shouldn't be cutting these forests at all now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering from your perspective, having been involved in the science, but also involved in public advocacy, and certainly I'm sure you've been party to more um, conversations than I have around this. I'm interested in whether you're concerned that because we've seen this policy announcement with a very long um, transition time period of 10 years, do you think that um, there may be less likelihood to um, be be more urgent or treat these ecosystems um, more carefully and to look after them more, given that the, it's almost like the government's now ticked this box, look, we care about trees, we're going to um, transition away, we're being very careful and um, conservative-minded in our approach. Um, do you think that's going to shut down conversations or, or even at least attempt to shut down further conversations around what actually is adequate and what what actually is evidence-based? Uh, look, I hope, it's, I, I, I hope it doesn't. You know, the, 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 evidence, the evidence is that you've got a significant proportion of the vertebrate fauna in these forests under, under massive decline. The evidence, the economic evidence is overwhelming that the, the industry is in terminal decline and it employs very few people. It's actually, the, it's actually not the, the driver of... Um, of economic activity that some people like to think it is. And 300 direct jobs is not a lot of people. And remember that Vic Forest is a hundred of those 300 jobs. So essentially you've got one public servant in Vic Forest for every two logging jobs. 
Um, economically, it doesn't work. Socially, it doesn't work. Environmentally, it doesn't work. We need to continue to have those discussions about how how public money is spent on a public resource, and where does where does the best value come from uh, a, a public asset, which is these forests. And I would advocate that this is not the best outcome for those important resources. Yes, and we've spoke. Oh, sorry. Indeed. Well, um, that's a great point. This is public land. It's public money. And we elect governments to represent us and hopefully use our money and spend it wisely, as well as our natural resources, which we've previously spoken about in terms of um, the contribution that these forests make. Um, not that they should have to. Um, I think it's f if even if they didn't contribute anything, they should still be standing. But they certainly do contribute a lot in terms of carbon storage as well as as you've mentioned um, maintaining our water in Melbourne and um, beyond I also just wanted to touch on the fact that um, the Central Highlands is a unique area and um, we've spoken before about the fact that it is um, a temperate climate it's it has um, some beautiful rainforest kind of fern species and areas so it's quite uh, moist when you go there and I'm interested in the changes to the weather and climate which we've seen over a number of years decades and of course given that you've been studying this forest for a number of decades I'm keen to understand given that things are so um, front of mind at the moment, how the actual system there, the climate system within that forest is working and whether that has changed and um, led to the potential for more fire in that kind of broader region? Yeah, that's a good question. And it takes a little bit to answer that. So first of all, there's a pretty strong climate signal in these forests now. Um, for example, we see the extreme conditions that are taking place in these forests are uh, killing some of the large old living trees. So there's, there's elevated tree death. We saw that particularly in the last, the last major drought period. Um, we've, we've seen unprecedented temperatures in various parts of the landscape. Uh, you know, when I first started working in those forests in the 1980s, the idea of having 40, 42, 44 degree temperatures in forests outside of Marysville was just, just insane. You'd never even contemplate that. Well, that that did happen in the last in the last um, major drought periods. We've also seen that the long term uh, the long term climate has changed quite dramatically. So in southeastern Australia and southwestern Australia. Long-term average rainfall is down by about 25%. That's some of the information that I've seen. So that is a drastic reduction in, in uh, mean average rainfall. We've also started to see some other interesting things taking place with some of the bird species that are moving upwards in elevation from some of the lower elevation sites that they were initially in. So birds like pilot birds, for example, are now in now in higher elevation sites and departing the lower elevation sites. So that's something that we're going to start to look in more detail in the coming year in terms of what's happening. The other thing that's important, though, is even though fire is most heavily influenced by fire weather, that's the, dem that's the, the absolute dominant set of 
criteria, so how windy it is, how dry it is, humidity, those kinds of things, temperature. There's also an effect, once you take into account of that, of what the land use history was in the forest. So we know that forests that have been logged and regenerated are much more likely to burn at higher severity, and scorch fires, we call them, than forests that haven't had that treatment. And it's not only not only people at, uh, at the ANU that have looked at this, but also University of Melbourne and independently verified by people at the University of Melbourne. So the effects of logging on fire are really quite profound. And so our systems are dealing with what we call an interaction between these two things, logging, fire and weather. David, it's been really, really valuable to hear from you. Um, I guess we're going to have to wrap things up, but just finally, um, if you wanted people to take away something from this um, Victorian government announcement, um, particularly looking at the Central Highlands, what would you wish for people to raise with their local MPs in terms of um, this announcement and whether it should be changed and how it might be improved upon? Well, I, I think the key issue here is that there isn't 10 years of timber left. And you can do a lot of damage in 10 years to very high conservation value forests and a lot of damage to water supply uh, and the like. So I would be encouraging Victorians to, to push their politicians to make this transition much, much faster within the next year or two. And I think that's also the most socially just thing to do so that um, workers have the opportunity to be transitioned into other industries and we can end up with a better outcome much more quickly. That's the best thing to do, not drag it out for the next decade, but wrap this up within the next couple of years so that people can move on with their lives, they can get the support to do it, and we can uh, see the best value, economic value, and the best social value realised for these really important forests as quickly as possible. Indeed, a lot can change when there is political will and uh, I thank you so much for doing this great research with you and your team of fellow researchers and thank you so much, David, for joining us today. Thanks, Amy. All the best. You too. Thanks. I've just been speaking with Professor David Lindenmeyer AO. He is a well-known ecologist and conservationist and professor and scientist at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU. And, uh, of course, David is um, based in Canberra, but he travels all the time, of course, for his job and has really published widely and prolifically in academic journals. And I do recommend um, reading them if you are so interested. They are actually quite accessible and um, it's really quite fascinating to um, keep across this research as it continues to evolve and to make sure that you can then make well-informed approaches to your politicians if this is an issue that you really care about. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And um, we're going to get into my next chat, and it is with the one and only Karis Thompson, who is a uh, folk rock singer, songwriter, and storyteller. And he certainly is, um, I would say, Melbourne alumni, and we're going to own him, even though he currently lives over in WA um, and came from not Melbourne. But we, you know, you understand why we're going to take you, Karis, and I'm welcoming him now. 
now in the studio. It's so wonderful to have him back with us. Hi there, Karis. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amy. And yeah, Melbourne is definitely better than Frio, so <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with that one. Tick. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually was going doing my research, as one does, and um, I saw that you made in a recent interview a reference to a grand final saying that doing a record almost feels like you know the preparation and lead up to a grand final there's like this really intense kind of build up and um yeah feeling around it and obviously when Ireland came out a couple of years ago that was after quite a long break and you had kids and had you know a lot on your plate and now about two years later um, we've got this wonderful album Shakespeare Avenue um, and it is really fascinating maybe we can first get into a conversation of the background behind the album and why it's called Shakespeare Avenue and the fact that you kind of went through a bit of a process like a physical process to do it. Yeah well I moved uh, my whole family we all moved over to England to a place uh, called Dartmoor in the southwest of England, um, about half an hour from Plymouth. And uh, I went over there because I wanted to work with a guy called Sean Lakeman, and who's a, the brother of a very good friend of mine, Seth Lakeman, who he plays the strings you were just talking about. Um, he's an amazing folk musician, and um, I've been lucky enough to tour over in England probably the last 10 years with Seth. And, and since I had that friendship, I sort of opened my eyes to like Richard Thompson, Dick Gocken, uh, Christy Moore, all this kind of um, British and Irish and Scottish folk. And uh, with this record, I wanted to sort of go down that path. Previously, I'd be more sort of the Springsteen, you know, Paul Kelly, obviously. I worship the, the master. <laughs> but um, I wanted to really try a crack at this sort of more traditional kind of folk. So I went over there and, um, yeah, we lived in this 800-year-old house in this little village called Walkhampton that had just one pub. That was it. Wow. <laughs> Nothing else. But the pub was five metres from our front door. How is the ale, by the way? Because it's pretty different, isn't it? Yeah, I, I can't do the ale. I can't do the bitters. I just, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a lager man. Mm. So um, I know they sort of look down their nose at me in the pub. But um, <laughs> I had to do it. And yeah, I had sort of half the songs written. And then the other half I really wrote while I was there. I was really sort of inspired by the um, the landscape and and the history and then the musical history of, of England and Britain, I guess. Mm, and it is a really long history, that kind of folk tradition. And I am not surprised that the range of kind of artists and writers and musicians have been inspired by the landscape of England and Scotland and Wales and yeah. Ireland because yeah. it is pretty unique. It's, it's amazing. And where we were in Dartmoor, it's where the um, illustrator from the uh, – from the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> grew up. So wow. you run and you come to like a crossroads. You're like, "Where's Frodo? Like, what's going on here?" You know. So it was, you know, it's and it's it's uh, one thing you realise when you're cruising around Britain is is it the history of the music, you know, and the tradition goes back a long, long, long time. And being I'm from Australia, born here, and we have an amazing long tradition here, but it's um, it's indigenous tradition, and you know, we we take it on and try to take it as part of our identity but ultimately you know we know we've invaded and we've come here and um so it's interesting to go to another place like England where ethnically you feel like oh this is this history is is part of of my genetic makeup too mm. and um and it's you know that they really support music over there it's it's you know when you do a gig it's not just the young hipsters that come out it's like the the grannies and everyone you know <laughs> like it's 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 like melbourne really you know it's melbourne's got that same thing where they get 
the art of music. You know, mm. sometimes it escapes people in WA sometimes, I have to say. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of England and your experience, you know, living there briefly in the scheme of your life, um, but of course it's a big deal to, you know, uproot the family and go on a big trip uh, 24 hours across, um, you know, the jet lag alone is quite fun. Uh, but in terms of where you were and the kind of environment that you were surrounded by, um, I believe that there was a really gorgeous national park and some of those images that have been taken for your album um, feature this beautiful landscape and scenery, which um, I was just remarking on because it's just so lush, so green and so um, special. What did you feel when you were there? Did you feel kind of different um, different things? Were you inspired by different elements of the landscape and England um, before we get into the more, I guess, political elements of the yeah. album? Yeah, um, I was definitely inspired. I mean, to me, if anyone's ever been to the northwest of this country, the Pilbara, where we're living, where we're staying is a place called the Dartmoor National Park, which is actually the biggest national park in, in England. And it really reminded me of the Pilbara, like it is so sparse and open. They have these huge things called these tors, which are these like granite outcrops of rock that come up out of these huge hills. And they're, they're really amazing to look at. And, and there's like a spiritualness, I guess, in that country. I mean, it's where a lot of the um, alternative... Uh, like Glastonbury's not too far from there and a lot of that alternative pagan thinking is from around there and when you're in that landscape you, you feel it you feel this connection to an ancient you know uh, something and I mean I was really lucky that my friend Seth Lakeman he's you know he's like ground zero of folk music in that area <laughs> so you know we're having sessions in pubs and so he was introducing us to the community and and the culture and and being like a bit of a guide I guess through this this um, traditional music world and it was, um, yeah, it was, was wonderful. I can't really imagine that. Um, I, first, before we get to other elements, the weather is kind of really important in the UK. It's almost like the most consuming thing that people think about <laughs> is whether it's overcast, if there'll be a spot of sunshine or if it's pouring rain or snowing. So what was it like over there? Where, when were you over there? Uh, we were there from May uh, till the about midway through till the beginning of July, and then we went for a tour of Germany with the whole family in a camper van and cruised wow. around for three weeks. We actually had like amazing weather. It was really um, people were like cursing our names yeah. basically, and um, <laughs> you know it was it was, it was beautiful. Um, yeah, so I mean I have a connection to there because the song the album's actually called Shakespeare Avenue. I know it sounds like I'm sort of big up in myself using uh, Shakespeare there, but it's a, a street in Bath in the West Country where my grandfather grew up and he came out here when I was about 10 years old and one of the, the title track off the record is about his journey. You know, he knew it was his last journey to come and be with family and it's about leaving a sense of place, I guess. You know, he was very at home in Bath mm. and I thought that was a, a good story and um, so I, I had that sort of connection as well. So, yeah, it was a... Amazing experience. Yeah. Um, I was struck when I went to Bath of how many stone buildings there are. Like I know in England there's a lot, but in Bath it's just like just endless stone really. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's <laughs> a beautiful um, 
beautiful place and yeah. you know it's the romans and the whole the the uh the layers of history is, is mm. quite amazing yeah um so given that we're also doing a bit of an unintentional tourist advert for yes. england <laughs> go over there you're gonna have a great time um <laughs> go to dartmoor yeah go to dartmoor go to devon all the all the good places um but let's talk also uh, about Shakespeare Avenue, you just mentioned um, that song, and it's one of my favourites off the album. Although I can't really pick a favourite, but the kind of um, I don't know it, ev- it evokes a feeling, and yeah. it really is a good feeling when I listen to it. Um, but it also does have a bit of yearning, and even the lyrics, you know, "Goodbye to the BBC," kind of gets you in the stomach. It's <laughs> <laughs> good for radio, radio announcers. Yeah, um, I guess with these songs, I mean, I've always been a narrative songwriter, um, and this is my seventh uh, studio album now. And people ask, you know, what did I do different? And I think what I tried to do is go deeper with the songs so I tried to you know um, make them more emotive and just I really tried to be present and in the moment and in touch with life around me uh, my family and you know everything and and I just wanted these songs to be yeah deeper I guess more mature but but deeper emotionally so there's still a lot of narrative stuff on there. there's a lot of political stuff mm. that's why I'm happy to be on this wonderful program but um, I wanted to just really try and connect with people inside and those things you're talking about yearning uh you know um emotion and nostalgia those kinds Mm. of things yeah yeah well it's very evocative i think and um i'm glad that you said that you were trying for emotion and um a deeper kind of feeling because there was certainly one song where i started to tear up and thought i was getting a bit soft because <laughs> it was really moving in a good way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. so um, I was like, wow, I'm crying over a song now. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't cry very often, but I really felt like some of those songs towards the end of the album really got me. Yeah, I mean, songs, um, you know, obviously the talking about personal experience, you know, people will identify with things in their own life and it brings up a lot of emotion. But in terms of, like, a political writing or documentation, mm. um, which is a... You know, we're talking about the English history, the bards, and, you know, it's been a long time, the troubadour. What a song does is because you have melody and, and rhythm, you can get past people's walls. You know, melody gets past people's. We put up political walls or we put up just walls of I don't want to care about that mm. or know about that. And what a melody does, it gets past that. It gets into people's heads and you can get in touch with that empathy. So you can tell a story, you know, refugees or you can tell a story about something politically there might be initially opposed to or just switch off but because they sing the melody they hear the story Mm. it gets inside them and and hopefully they'll think about something differently so let's um get into some of the tracks here um that are i guess bringing up very different issues and they're all really 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 timely right now um i think to um talk about ship to come in first given that it's being released as a single this week and yep. the videos just Today. come out. Yep. How wonderful, perfect timing. And um, that is a song which I think we spoke at the Piping Hot Chicken yes. Shop yep. Yeah, yep. Um, about, we were talking about gender equality and, and that as an issue and you tackle a lot of really tough issues like homelessness and uh, mental health and drug addiction and um you know there's just so many different elements refugees um yeah 
it's, it's one of those issues that I think is really hard to write a song about. And it is so broad, I guess, the, the issue of the patriarchy and the way that it manifests in a capitalist democracy like Australia and America and the UK, yeah. um, let alone anywhere else. And so I was interested in that kind of how that all came to be and you are thinking about it because I know it might be quite confronting for a man sometimes it's, I mean, it's to enter is, that arena. Yeah, I mean, I had to be very careful with this song because I would never want to you know mansplain or and it's not my my story to tell it's not it's not my fight but and also you know I am a man and and I am part of the patriarchy and I have um, benefited from that and certainly when I was younger I was certainly not aware of that and um, you know there's a lot of things I've done as a man that I'm very ashamed of and um you know, I'm very lucky to have a wonderful wife who's incredibly intelligent, very political, and I guess she's helped to teach me and evolve me, you know, and um, I'm 43 years old now and, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to change and, and be better. Um, and this song, yeah, I would, you know, I'm not an expert in, in this. There's plenty of um, women who are incredibly, incredibly you know, any woman's way more qualified to talk about this than me you know um, it's a thing with gender equality it's like you know uh, talking about racism you got white middle class guys telling indigenous people what it's like to be indigenous is like be quiet you mm. know and same with this as a man what you got to do is is listen you know and and try to change and try to do your best but um in terms of this song i write songs about what i feel and I felt about this subject and so I've written this song it's it's a show of support um, and it's it's my way of trying to contribute I guess and um, you know apart from trying to just become a better guy. Mm. Well they're two very tangible things that a guy can do and I think that um, from someone who's worked in this sector um, well for yeah over six years maybe longer even I don't even know how old I am now yeah that's scary but it, it's certainly something that keeps coming up for us is we need men to stand up beside us to support what yeah, support. we have absolutely. asked for and demanded yes, definitely and that and listen yeah, yeah and listen absolutely yeah. because otherwise you can't provide that support if you don't know what it is that women want and need yep. um, and what the inequities are. So I think this is like actually a really important contribution and it's great to see it coming from you. Um, and so, yeah, congratulations on attempting it and succeeding because I think it is a great song. Yeah, I mean, I just thought about my wife and I thought about all the women that, that I know and things they've been through, you know, just, just to exist, just to walk down the street. And once again, I'm completely being a huge part of that and like I said there's so many things I wish I could change when I was younger stuff I wish I could change a year ago but I'm uh, I'm trying to be a better man and, and I think the more men that go out there you know and do that things things can can uh, hopefully get better in the future I mean don't stand there and tell a woman what it's like to be a woman like you yeah. just do not know just just yeah. listen be quiet you know so um Apart from I've told everyone to be quiet, I'm going to sing a song. <laughs> but anyway. 
So I'm um, speaking with Karis Thompson. His new album is Shakespeare Avenue. And we're going to hear this song, Ship to Come In, which has come out today as a single and also the video. And I'll just get you all ready to go, Karis. Here we go. It's the longest war, it's never been won Can't let down your guard, put down your gun Guys on the corner say it's just a bit of fun It's a rich man's world, thinks and knows it all Beware what you say, beware where you walk These are dangerous days to try to make it home We wait for us ship to come in We wait to be safe in our own skin Strong, beautiful girl flies through the air Raises a leg above her head Demons drag her down, try to strip her bed I've seen you run I've seen you cry, seen you rebuild, seen you roll the dice I've seen you fight to draw the line We wait for our ship to come in We wait to be safe in our own skin We wait for our ship to come in We wait to be safe in our own skin. Wow, it's so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I was, um, I was also, I was in Melbourne at the time where I thought about the whole Taylor Harris mm. thing that happened with the photograph. So that's the second verse is about that. And um, yeah. Thanks. I'm so glad you like it. No, I do. I love it. It's And it's amazing to hear it live, I've got to say. It's just like even more special. And I feel like there's something about it, perhaps because you are a live performer and you do so much touring and live performances that there is a real uh, emotive, raw, kind of um, earnest element in the way that you perform your songs from my perspective as, a, as someone like soaking it up as an audience member. Yeah, I mean, you've got to, especially with that song, I, I feel a, a lot when I'm, you know, if, if you're not feeling it yourself, how do you expect mm-hmm. other people to feel it? So, um, you know, I've been doing this a long time and it, this is what I've, this is my thing, you know, so I've just got to do it as best I can every time. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were just actually in Bendigo over the weekend, I saw, yes, doing yeah. some, um, yeah, amazing work, and there's a great lineup, obviously, over there. Um, how is it in terms of performing in those environments when it's kind of as part of a festival, and um, you know there are a whole range of acts there? It's like a bit of a melting pot. Yeah, I guess you. Um, and this is one thing with getting older. You you try to find the thing that makes you you. You know, whatever makes you unique. Um, you know, um, no two artists are alike. No two humans are alike. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you try and find the thing and you try and um, uh, 
make it more defined, I guess. You know, you've got less time, so you maybe choose the songs that really come out and, mm. and stay with people. Yeah. Um, it, I'm reminded of uh, a moment you posted when you were away in England and you performed in Salisbury Cathedral which is amazing because that's it's such an important landmark in English history and architecture and even art because John Constable uh, painted Salisbury Cathedral a number of times um, because he was so inspired. It's the tallest spire in the UK. Um, what was it like performing in some of those really different venues over in the UK and also with Seth? Yeah, incredible. I mean, Salisbury Cathedral, that was a thousand people, you know, and then you're in this, this cathedral, it's a thousand years old, you know, it was it was like uh, you'd be playing and you just look up and you go, wow, you know, it's mm. incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm really lucky with Seth Lake. I mean, he's got such a huge um, fan base and they're all, they're all different ages and, and they really get the songwriting thing. I mean, you know, he's a narrative songwriter. He's more doing like traditional stories, but... Um, they really listened, so it was, it was, uh, you know, a great experience for me, and and that sort of opened the English market, I guess, for me, you know, because um, I'm getting in front of English crew rather than just heaps of Australians in London, which <laughs> happens to a lot of Australian acts when you go over there. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Sells out with all these, and they're like, we're trying to play the English. Baby. <laughs> I don't. I feel like when you're over there, it's like it feels like half of the population is Australian or New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Probably isn't the case, but you do, yeah, it feels like you could almost run into someone from Melbourne in London. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky because there is a real resistance in the English music scene as well to yeah. another Australian, but because <laughs> Seth sort of took me under his, you know, his name is like, you know, opens doors over there and it, mm. the, the fact that he sort of played on this record and help, has helped me out just in the folk world, people go, oh, right, you know, and he's a lovely, lovely human being too. Yeah, an amazing live performer. I remember you both toured together, I think it was 2012. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I saw you both live twice with my sister and he his kind of um jam I guess is like he sings and he plays the violin and the viola and he's really multi-talented amazing musician mm. yeah yeah and he has that folk thing which I tried to tell if everyone's ever heard Dick Gocken um you know it's interesting when you hang out with those guys like Seth they'll, they'll see like Springsteen a Springsteen video or, or live gig and they'll go oh, it's just too showbiz, you know, mm. they, whereas I see that and I go, oh, I love that rock and roll, you know, but that folk thing, they're like, no, nah, it's, it's just too too showbiz, you know, so when they, they really deliver the music and the song and, and um, it's just an interesting approach, there's like another, there's an edge to it, I think, that is that is different um, and for this record I listened to heaps and heaps of um, Dick Gock and Handful of Earth, which is an incredible folk record, but as my friend Seth said, it's like he's about to have a fight, you know. It's just—it's so edgy and just, mm. and so um, I tried to bring a bit of that to to what I do, I guess. And um, yeah, yeah, not the fight bit, but the edge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'm reminded of acoustic at the Norfolk Volume One because there are a lot of folk instruments engaged in that. Um, album and the songs relevant to that album and there was violin and mandolin and harmonica and so many kind of other instrumentation that um, sometimes doesn't appear as prominently on other albums and it was interesting that the strings have been brought back 
unsurprisingly, um, on this one, what was it like for you writing these songs and then also recording them to incorporate the, the other elements of string instruments? I mean, I always think acoustic violin and mandolin has always really worked really well for my music. And with Ireland, I guess I tried to move away from that just for a record to mm. do something different. But uh, I always knew I was going to do this, Seth was going to play on it. So I was really thinking about that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting you took, you know, Seth, you talk about his performance live. Interesting enough, he said to me the first time he thought about performing like that was he saw the waifs at Port Ferry, like, 20 years ago and he was yeah. just hit by this idea with people think with acoustic instruments you have to make them small and it's this little but he's like no just make them big like treat it like a rock band go for it loud and proud turn them up mm. and I think when you play acoustic instruments like that it's it's a really um, authentic intense in your face thing and, and whether it's violin or mandolin as long as you still treat it like you're an electric guitar in a punk rock band <laughs> it's great you know yeah it's it's so cool um to hear people rocking out on a violin yeah because yeah. it can be done and yeah. i've seen it before though i remember going to queenscliff music festival and you were there actually and i think it was the same year that jan tearson was performing in um qmf which now seems quite unlikely because he's so big but he quite literally broke nearly every string on his violin to play the songs that he did and it was quite phenomenal and you are supported uh on this tour by lucy fisher who's a fantastic uh, musician herself and I know has played with you before um, what's it like to kind of reunite with Lucy yeah, on this? she's an amazing violin player and we both come from the same sort of performance school I guess and we're about energy and rocking out you know we were playing acoustic guitar and a violin but we're about energy we're about mm -hmm. getting the energy with the crowd and getting them involved and lifting them getting them dancing getting them getting him into it so um yeah, if people come down to Northcote on Sunday doing a matinee show, but um, we'll be trying to get everyone moving. So Lucy and I, we just connect like that and we, you know, we go for it. Yeah. Take no prisoners. Ha <laughs> bring it on. Um, let's talk about Shoulder, which is yeah. a fantastic song. And um, I remember first hearing it, you kind of did a bit of a little preview for us down at the Piping Hot Chicken shop before you went to the UK. And there were a couple of songs you played from this um, new album. One was Shoulder, and I think from memory the other was Jägen, which was amazing as well. Um, and I'm really interested in Shoulder given the state of politics in Australia, which seems to be constantly declining in terms of politicians taking accountability for the issues that they are quite literally employed to manage. I know and then at the same time you've got New Zealand where we just look and go please can, we, can, she just, can we just Swap. can she take yeah how yeah. about we just be part of New Zealand now yeah 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 wasn't it Norfolk that wants to become part of New Zealand. All I right. think they just decided. They, yeah, I saw it in the news a week ago. I was like, good like, on you. I, like I hope it style. works out. I hope it all happens. Yeah, I mean, I, this song, Shoulder, I wrote um, the last few years. I've been doing a lot of workshops out in a place called Midland, which is sort of like um, outer suburbs of Perth. It's sort of pretty rough town. And it was at the same time we had all our, you know, million leadership changes. And, um, and I was just sort of struck by this idea that, you know, uh, people in the major parties, both of them, they've got you know no idea what it's like to live in a in a poor suburb like that, or what people are doing, or, or maybe they know but they don't seem to care because they're just mm. too busy with power struggles. 
yeah, possibly don't care. Yeah, and then the second yeah. uh, the second verse actually written, I was from back when I was working here and I was um, doing some landscaping. I was working out in Tarnit. Oh wow, gosh, and, uh, it's growing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we were. Uh, it was really early on, and we were uh, working on this um, amazing sort of community garden. But we'd we'd plant all the plants, and then like on the weekends, the kids would come and like tear them all up, and we'd come back and plant them again. <laughs> so um, yeah, I sort of it was a bit of a metaphor, I guess. So yeah, so I wrote this song called um, called Shoulder. Beautiful too. I don't. I feel like I'm running out of adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's so yeah. It really does grab you. Or yeah, I really. It's one of those things when you're talking about like bringing down walls and political ideology. 
that's exactly what I feel like it does is you kind of get caught up in the emotion of it and the significance and effects of political inaction and yeah, yeah. and you really feel that. And it kind of, I think, yeah, you understand more why politics then is important. Yeah, I mean, people say, I'm not a political person. I'm like, are you breathing air? I mean, yeah. if, I think if you're a human being, by being a human, you, you are, you're existing in this world and this world is political. And, um, you know, I think we, we live at a, a strange time when there's sort of uh, nuance has sort of been lost. So people are finding, it, you know, they don't discuss things. It's like these really short Thing, and you lose discussion, mm. you lose um, you lose communication in that. But um, we're also at a time when people sort of have this idea that, oh, you know, we can justify everything. We can justify like a hard right ideology because it's there. You know, I think it's also important to go, no, some things are wrong. Mm. Some things are true. There are essential truths. And, um, you know, so songs can be can be really good about that. And, you know, programs like yours, you just do an amazing, amazing job of, um, you know, Fighting the good fight. <laughs> so, like, I've got to say, sometimes it can get quite demoralizing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's why I've also focused on some of those issues that really this song kind of alludes to, which is about people who perhaps don't have a voice or don't have the power that politicians have and that are kind of getting caught up in the, a bit of a heartless system. Yeah, you know, yeah. and there are so many people who are caught up in that from you know, new start and disabilities and um, yeah. people who don't have a home to go home to, and people fleeing from a domestic violence situation. So many people, and I'm also interested in your work because I know you've been teaching music to some young people and um, and also out in more rural regional areas over in WA has that also given you some perspectives and different ways in absolutely give me a lot of empathy and I mean it's wonderful to hang with young people you know I mean young people are fantastic and you know it's really interesting talking about um, you know gender issues like that when you speak to a lot of young boys I mean they're so far ahead you know I wish I wish I had that when you know they're not caught up with this sort of a lot of that toxic masculinity stuff that that I definitely grew up with and um you know and you can see changes and I guess one of the amazing things that we're seeing one of the developments today is young people getting involved in the political process and standing up I mean thank mm, god you know yeah. these people you know leaving school and marching and, and you just think you know, wow, as, you know, youth, it is just a beautiful, wonderful thing. And, and what I do is, um, you know, people that haven't been able to tell their stories, songs are a wonderful way to do that. Storytelling is a way of taking ownership of your narrative. And it's the same thing for a lot of young people. They, people old people tell them how it is, you know, and they're <laughs> like, well, actually, this is how it is. And here's my song, you know, um, mm. have a listen. Mm. Um, and I'm reminded of our conversation last time, which was quite a while ago now, but I revisited it and remembered that you yourself had some formative experiences growing up out, you know, in regional areas and particularly um, Peppermanate, which is, you know, a very small town in Australia. And you have been um, certainly had the chance to interact with and understand um, our first peoples here in Australia in a lot, a lot greater depth than I know a lot of people would have. How has 
have those issues that people, the inequities that Indigenous Australians are still facing, how has that influenced you? And kind of, I know there are a few songs that have touched on those experiences. Yeah, I mean, I was doing a gig the other day and I've got a song called Born With A Broken Heart, which is about, you know, young Indigenous um, guys in, you know, or just Indigenous people in, in general. And, and a guy came up and said, oh, so... You know, born with a broken heart. So are you saying like the heart can't be mended? Like what are you saying? You know, what's the answer? And I was like, well, you know, I'm big. You know, John Lennon once said, you know, a songwriter's job is not to come up with the answer. Like I'm not an expert. You know, definitely not. But you definitely ask the questions, mm. and songs should start a discussion. And I was like, well, that's sort of the point of the song. Like, don't ask me, mate. <laughs> ask some indigenous people. You know, yeah. To ask ask them what what they feel they need to start moving, and you know. I would have thought like a, a, a treaty would be a, a good start, um, but you'd have to speak to. There's plenty of amazing indigenous leaders and amazing indigenous people out there. Speak to them, ask them. You know, listen. Same mm. thing. Just listen. Yeah, and that's one of the issues that is really important federally at the moment uh, in politics is reconciliation and it not being a symbol that it actually means something. Um, or that's what certainly the statement of the heart kind of seem to make clear is that it wasn't really about symbolism it was about you know real outcomes and real recognition and yeah 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 I mean it's a it's a you know and part of my songs I still think Australia we 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 haven't begun yet you know I don't think we will you know we're talking about New Zealand uh, Mm. you know um great example I think we haven't we haven't started yet until we can work out these things and, and start discussions without it being a political football um, and without catering to hardline conservatives or being scared of them. You know, I think the shoulders a little bit about, I just like to see our politicians leading, you know, you know, you lead because you know, this is the right thing to do. Go there, say it, people will follow you. People will appreciate it. People will appreciate someone just saying, well, I don't know the answer, but let's find out. Mm. Yeah. And that's something um, which is, I guess, become more obvious as time goes on. Given the last election, we didn't see a policy platform really from the Liberal Party (laughs) and now they're just saying, oh, well, you voted us in, this is what you wanted. Well, I don't really know. Did we sign off on that? Because I don't think you had policies. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's all these kind of political songs, even lies from the last album, it still becomes so relevant sadly um and i think putting pressure on people and making us the the kind of electorate have a bit of a perspective reset and realize that politicians are representing us they're working for us yeah and they're not well not many of them are doing a particularly good job yeah and i mean people you know that thing where people say oh i'm sort of turned off by public arms you know but it's a I say that's the major parties like you mm. know if, if you if you're disillusioned with them find an independent or you know vote for a minor party or but vote you know politics this this is life you, you, this is what happens when you don't get involved so make your vote count vote find someone who's got the policies you agree with and vote for them mm. you know it's that's that's democracy. Like you don't have to vote for Labor and Liberal every time. You don't. Yeah, and it's certainly changing even yeah, in the last five quickly, years. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly in Melbourne. I mean, that's we, we love this town because people are they are so political and they're so aware and they care. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful city. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking that we might 
want to get to another yes, song if yeah. you're interested. Yeah, no worries. Because um, we've just heard um, Shoulder and before that Ship to Come In, which came out today as a single. Of course, the album came out, was it how long ago now? Uh, it was about a month. A month. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it came out early October. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, when I was looking at the track list, I've got to say I really struggled to pick what, as I've said, are my favourites. One I was surprised that I really loved um, was the last track, You See Through, because oh, it was yeah. so, yep. it's such a different, interesting melody that you've created in yeah. that song. Yeah. Um, and I also really loved Shakespeare Avenue. I mean, I think they're all fantastic. So oh, <laughs> <laughs> I hate to sound like I'm on the fence about yeah. anything because I usually... When, when's your show going <laughs> national? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually the funny thing about this show is that it's... It's quite international and national. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely to hear from listeners when they say, I'm in Canberra and I'm listening or, you know, I'm over in Norway or Japan and they're listening. So it feels really lovely to have such a broad thinking, open-minded, passionate community. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful show. I mean, it's a, Triple R's just a wonderful station, you mm. know. It's, um, yeah, it's so so great to, uh, to be in, yeah. Yeah, it's so lovely to have you in again. Karis, I'm... Don't, I'm not going to be too selfish, so I'll leave it to you as to pick which oh, no, you I'll want. Pl- I'll play um, Shakespeare Avenue yeah, for you. Yeah, sounds before. amazing. That was one of your, um... Now let me just get the sound up for you. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for listening. My name's Karis Thompson. I'm down at the Northcote Social Club on uh, Sunday. And uh, thanks for listening to my political rants. But I'm going to leave you with a, a non-political song off the record. This is the title track. It's called Shakespeare Avenue. Sussbury Hill A pine at the bear flat With my brother Bill My mother was mayor of this town This town is me We sold it all When we lost Terry And these walls, they won't crumble down This high, it beats loud I won't be coming home This is my last journey Farewell to Shakespeare Avenue Farewell to the BBC Do this for those you love Do this for family Farewell to Shakespeare Avenue Farewell to a part of me At the top of the hill Houses in a row No more Sunday brunches With those I know But I see my grandkids grow up For you I cross the sea This town knew me when I was young This town knew Terry And these walls, they won't crumble down And this heart, it beats loud I won't be coming home This is my last journey Farewell to Shakespeare Avenue Farewell to the BBC Do this for those you love Do this for family Farewell to Shakespeare Avenue Farewell to a part of me
other side of the world So much is different here I don't look back I hold no fear Young men we storm around With our plans and schemes When the dust settles They didn't watch you leave They didn't watch you leave Farewell to Shakespeare Avenue Farewell to Shakespeare Avenue joyful and sad kind of at the same time oh thank you yeah, well, yeah. that's that's uh i guess life you know yeah. it was about my grandfather and uh beautiful that he that he left his home um with his with his wife to come to australia to be with us kids but it you know it must have been hard for him to live leave such a, a beautiful home where his brother was and his family was and yeah it's about sense of place i guess you know a town that that knows you that knows who you are Mm. And when did he come across out of curiosity? Well, I would have been 10 years old, so that was oh, that 30 years ago, yeah. yeah. I mean, he loved the um, – he did love the beach. Uh, he, my grandfather used to always say, you know, a handsome man is always slightly sunburnt. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. With wise words. It doesn't take much for me to sunburn, but you, you might take a bit longer. Oh, no, I'm the, no? I'm the same. Yeah, I think we're from the yeah, yeah, same heritage yeah. there. Yeah, I go in the sun for about five <laughs> seconds. That's why, you know, I love Melbourne. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. It's ironic that you're over in WA, which is like nearly always sunny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, to remind our um, fabulous community, you are going to be here still for a few more days and you're going to be playing at the Northcote Social Club on Sunday, as you mentioned, in a matinee performance. When does it start? Yeah, it's uh, one till four, so doors open at one. And, um, yeah, I'm going to do two sets from 1.30 um, so I can get through a lot of these songs. And, um, yeah, it's going to be going to be great. It's always – I love playing the Northcote Social Club and, and I, I mean, I love playing Melbourne. It's one of my, you know, uh, biggest followings, I guess, mm. around the world. Yes, and I should mention we have a number of coastal listeners, so there oh, yes. is a reprise – gig at the piping hot chicken shop in ocean grove yes, isn't there the night before saturday the 16th this saturday night so um yeah come down there's still i think there's about 30 tickets left so um yeah, yeah get in get in quick yeah it's a wonderful intimate and really raucous crowd usually so yeah <laughs> should i mean be good. i love you know a perfect venue for me is that sort of 100 to 200 mm. capacity where i can really connect connect with people and you know, the audience uh, as much a part of the show as, as I am. You know, that's what I, I believe performance is about. It's a, a special thing coming together and, and making an event, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as I said at the start of this interview with Karis, Ship to Come In just came out today as a single, as did the video. And um, the 16 days of activism for um, fighting against all forms of gender-based violence is coming up in November. So it's really great timing and fantastic to have a male ally like yourself expressing and also listening to um, women and and really caring about this issue so much so thank you for doing um your part to raise our consciousness in in some covert ways in (laughs) 
through song. And uh, congratulations on this wonderful album. Oh, thank you so much and thanks for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Karis Thompson, sorry, Karis Thompson, who is uh, based up in WA at the moment, took a trip across the world to England to record this album, Shakespeare Avenue, and we've been hearing some tracks from it and talking about it, and the full interview will be up on iTunes and SoundCloud later, and you can, of course, stream it on On Demand if you missed any part of it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm really pleased to have with me on the phone Professor Leslie Hughes. Um, now, Leslie is a leading climate scientist in the world and in Australia, and she's been part of some very important moments uh, in the science of climate change, and particularly um, being one of the lead authors of the IPCC Global Reports, Assessment Reports, which were numbers four and five. She's also part of the Climate Council, uh, which is a very important body which advocates for greater awareness and also action on climate change. And um, it's interesting that Leslie is a um, ecologist by trade and uh, she certainly does look at things from a big picture perspective of an ecosystem, um, but she's also clearly looking at how the climate fits into that picture and the, how the elements are interacting. So I'm really excited now to welcome Leslie Hughes on the phone all the way from Sydney at the moment and is um, battling some horrible heat over there. Hi there, Leslie. Hi, Amy. Good to be with you. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Um, now, I know that uh, you will have to catch a flight later and certainly um, there are a number of bushfires still raging at the moment in New South Wales and we've seen some horrifying um, effects really catastrophic effects um, in terms of property loss uh, people going missing people dying um, and certainly there is a great concern that um, things might escalate in the next week but particularly today um, given that a state of emergency was declared and um, the conditions at the moment in New South Wales are quite dry and um, potentially windy. So first up, given how, um, I guess, prominent this discussion has become in the public um, in the last week, uh, particularly yesterday as well when we heard our Deputy Prime Minister um, and Minister McCormack come out and talk about um, the fact that really we shouldn't be talking about climate change right now. We should be um, being empathetic and offering our support and help to those affected rather than talking about the underlying causes. But um, that obviously did get a bit of pushback and and um, he certainly didn't use language that um, I think brought many people onto his side. So I'd like to understand the evidence around this issue and um, in a way 
that might help us understand why talking about climate change at the moment would be something of a, a mark of respect for the people who have lost houses and are quite concerned about um, their welfare and the environment's welfare at the moment. So first up, when we talk about climate change and drought and bushfires, what, how are those elements linked together and how do they influence one another? Sure. Thanks, Amy. Yes. Um, you know, firstly, let me say that um, unlike Michael McCormack, I think this is exactly the right time to be talking about climate change because, of course, climate change is exacerbating the risk that we're seeing with bushfires right now. And it would be OK if the government actually talked about climate change at other times, but they don't. And I think it's actually quite disgraceful that um, they're hiding behind the people that have lost houses as an excuse not to talk about climate change now. So that's my political statement. <clears throat> but, but if I talk about the science, well, look, I think the easiest way I can explain fires and climate change is that you can think of bushfires as needing three things. You need a spark to get it going. You need something to burn, and that's the fuel. And you need the weather on the day to be... Um, the right weather to carry the fire. Now, if we go back to the, the spark, well, that could come from anything. It could come from lightning, from power lines, from a 10-year-old with a box of matches. It doesn't really matter. Um, you just need that spark. Though so there is some evidence that climate change is also increasing the amount of dry lightning strikes. If we think about the fuel, one of the things that affects the flammability of vegetation the most is its dryness. So being in a drought here um, <clears throat> through most of uh, eastern Australia, especially in New South Wales, means that the fuel that's out there, the vegetation, is extremely dry. So that means it takes very, very little to get that burning. So that's where the climate aspect comes in because we've, we've had about three decades of declining rainfall um, and this current drought looks like it's going to be worse than the previous millennial drought. There's no end in sight. Um, so there's a climate aspect there. But look, on any particular day, the thing that really affects whether a fire gets going is that the weather. So here I'm sitting in Sydney at the moment, it's forecast to be 38 degrees later on, um, and there are very strong dry winds also forecast. So it's the sort of day um, that we're seeing more and more of, because as average temperatures go up, that means that extreme te temperatures are going up even proportionally more. So in a warming world with greater extremes, more heat waves, ongoing declines in rainfall, all of those things come together to be the perfect conditions of uh, really intense bushfires. Yes, and um, Michael McCormack isn't the only politician who's sought to deflect um, discussions around climate change um, and drought and bushfires. Recently, not only um, did the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, also um, intervene and say, no, no, not today, don't talk about it. Um, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, was also offering his thoughts and prayers, and I know a lot of people were saying that's not really good enough. Um Certainly, given the evidence about the links and that this is not a radical position to have and yet terminology like radical is being used, um, how does someone such as yourself who is a, a scientist who is all about evidence and 
rationality and and science. How does one approach um, a political situation and environment whereby uh, people who value those kind of things are actually at the moment kind of being attacked? Hmm. Well, look, I think we, um, you know, as part of my role on the Climate Council, I think it's our role to call out stupidity, to call out bad policy and to praise good policy. And we will continue to do that regardless of of who in in Parliament or which political party um, it's coming from. So, um, you know, as an academic, I I have academic freedom and I'll call out when I I think somebody said something stupid or unhelpful. Look, it is the time to talk about climate change now. Um, and one of the reasons for that, if I, if I go back to 2013 when the Climate Council was first formed after the Climate Commission was abolished by the federal government, um, we raised a lot of money in that very first week. And we sat around thinking, well, what do we do now? And the thing we decided to do, and this is September 2013, was to, to write our first report on bushfires and climate change because we were coming into a, a summer, we thought, like this, like this situation, it would be bad for bushfires. And so our very first report was called Be Prepared, and it was about the link between climate change and bushfires. And since that time, we've written 11 other reports, all called Be Prepared. And this is the really critical point. Not only um, do we have to address the root cause of climate change, which is the burning of fossil fuels, but we also have to acknowledge that climate change is driving increased risk from the sorts of extreme events that we're seeing today. And if we acknowledge that these are getting worse, that leads to better preparation. And one of the things we've urged in all of our reports and all of our media is that we have to acknowledge that things are getting worse. We have to acknowledge that more resources need to be being prepared. And in this particular circumstance, that means a lot more resources into building up our fire services, building up their equipment and supporting those firefighters that are out there on the front line. So I think by not talking about climate change, by not acknowledging that things are getting worse, it gives the excuse to the government of not adequately preparing for these sorts of events. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Yeah, there's certainly not really an excuse given that this has been um, part of our experience. Certainly increasing bushfires and increasing severity of bushfires has certainly been happening um, in my living time and, of course, many others. And it's um, concerning because... Often, and obviously it's important that we're looking at this in terms of how a bushfire can uh, endanger human life and human property, but it also endangers a great number of other things um, that we do rely on and that are important to our planet. Um, And given your background um, as an ecologist, certainly um, fires seem to affect ecosystems and also impact upon uh, mammals and different species um, of creatures that are reliant upon these um, ecosystems that do get affected by bushfire. So could you share with us from that perspective 
um, some of the reasons why we should be concerned. And I mean, I note that in the most recent report from the Climate Council, um, the status of biodiversity in Australia has said to be considered poor and deteriorating which is according to the most recent State of the Environment report and also found that traditional pressures facing the environment are being exacerbated by climate change. From, from your kind of expertise and um, standpoint, what are those um, elements of our ecosystems and uh, biodiversity that are truly at risk at the moment? Well, Amy, thanks for mentioning the latest Climate Council report, which is called This is What Climate Change Looks Like, and anybody listening can, can download it for free from the Climate Council website. It's essentially a photo essay showing, in many cases, before and after photos of ecosystems, and in some cases, species, where we've seen ecosystem collapse um, really suddenly. So whether it be in the marine environment, um, coral reefs collapsing because of leaching, we've seen kelp, kelp forests and uh, seagrass beds collapsing from underwater heat waves. We've seen uh, river red gums in the Murray-Darling collapsing uh, due to, to drought combined with um, allocation of water to irrigation. Um, it doesn't matter where you go in Australia, we're seeing uh, climate change really starting to bite, you know, with some of these um, events happening over the space of several days or, or weeks or months. On the species perspective, there's some examples in that report where, if I give you one example of the spectacle flying fox from Queensland, which is a, an endangered species, about a third of the whole species population died on a single day in, in Cairns when it got really, really hot. So where species become very rare and restricted, um, you could have a single heat wave that could cause um, a species to go extinct in the matter of days, and that's what we're really concerned about. In terms of bushfires, well, obviously the things that are most vulnerable are things that can't fly or run away quickly enough. Um, I was just listening to the news yesterday which acknowledged that um, there's a population of koalas up on the north coast where they think um, over 300 koalas will have been killed in, in this fire in the last few days. So things like koalas and possums and other um, tree-dwelling mammals that, that certainly can't run away fast, um, they're very vulnerable to these really intense fires. But they're not the only things, um, you know, there's lots of things that are much smaller and, and less charismatic to fires um, than koalas that, that also get caught up. Now, Australia, of course, has, has had fires for a long time, um, but uh, they have tended in the past to be of much lower intensity, more patchy, um, uh, occurred with, with far less damaging impacts than we're seeing now. But the sort of... Uh, really intense and severe fires that we're getting as the climate warms up uh, are things that, that very few organisms in, in, a, in a burnt area could survive. And so fire will be and is being one of the really important drivers of species loss and ecosystem change.
Indeed. And when we think also beyond um, the actual landmass to our oceans, I noticed that a lot of um, the research that's kind of made the news more recently has been around Antarctica and sea level rises and um, the fact that when you look back uh, over a 125,000 year period, um, sea levels apparently rose 10 metres above the present levels. And that was that lasted about 10,000 years, um, which is quite shocking. And uh, I know a lot of climate scientists have kind of compared the moment that we're in and the massive changes we're seeing as basically comparable to the last ice age. What's um, your perspective on those kind of areas? Yes, well, look, we've had over the geological history of the Earth, um, the climate has changed, you know, for different reasons than it's changing now. But those changes have been really, really, really slow compared to what we're seeing now. And when changes are slow, it gives everything uh, a much greater opportunity to adapt. What we're seeing now is is a far faster phenomenon to adapt to. So um, some of my colleagues published a paper in Science a couple of years ago that noted that if you, say, going back 7,000 years, which is the period called the Holocene, and compare um, the amount of climate change that we had and the rate of it between 7,000 years ago and the 1970s, so 7,000 years, and then compare that rate to the the rate that the climate's changing since the 1970s, so over the last 40 years, the climate's changed about 170 times faster in the last 40 years than it did in the previous 7,000. So that's really what, what we're concerned about, and that's where humans have difficulty adapting, but certainly our species have a great deal of difficulty adapting to a change that's occurring so quickly. And you mentioned sea level rise, and sea level rise combined with storm surges unfortunately appears to be responsible for the very first well-documented extinction of a mammal due to climate change, and that was in Australia. So not only do we have a dubious record in terms of extinction rates since European settlement, we now hold the record for the first mammal to go extinct. And it was a little um, thing called the Bramble Chemolomies, a little native rodent. It lived on a little sandy atoll up in the Torres Strait. It was already endangered. And the atoll has basically been inundated during a storm um, uh, exacerbated by sea level rise. And we've now lost that species. So yet another dubious record, I'm afraid, that Australia has set. Yeah, that's certainly not one that we should... um be happy about it's quite shocking really to think that we are contributing such a enormous amount in a bad way to the situation um i'm interested about the the links between climate change and drought and the agriculture sector sector which i believe will come up tonight as well in the conversation at melbourne university and um from a, a report from about a year ago from the Climate Council, it said that drought conditions um, have officially been declared in over 16% of New South Wales and, um, and nearly 58% of Queensland. Um, 
What is actually the the case in terms of where we stand now and the situation of drought, which clearly is playing into a number of issues, bushfire, but also um, the issues with the Murray-Darling, that's one part of it. Um, Of course, there's a lot of other human elements to that. And also um, the agriculture sector and farmers who are truly um, struggling with these conditions. A lot of uh, nationals, politicians and liberals might say, well, we've had droughts and they've, you know, come and gone um, across Australia's history, what's new? And um, for, for us, what is actually new and what mm. what is that link? Mm. Well, look, it's similar to, to the bushfire situation. Um, yes, in, in Australia's history, there's been droughts and there's been floods and there's been bushfires, as the Dorothy McKellar poem uh, talks about. Uh, the thing is, climate change is exacerbating all of those things. So uh, we now are having more, what, what seems to be more severe drought conditions. Keep the hope alive. And um, I hope people can head along to the event tonight and um, hopefully all the planes are still flying over in yeah. Sydney. Um, this is, the event is responding to the challenges of climate change and it is on tonight at Trinity College on the Parkville campus at the University of Melbourne and starts at 5.45. Thank you so much, Leslie, for your time and uh, for all the work you're doing on what is a really um, important issue. Thanks so much, Amy. It was great to talk to you. I've been speaking with Professor Leslie Hughes, who was a distinguished professor of biology and a pro-vice-chancellor in research integrity and development at Macquarie University. Her research in particular focuses on the impacts of climate change on species and ecosystems. She was a federal climate commissioner when it was a publicly funded body. Now she's part of the uh, Climate Council, which is essentially what the body became. And um, she's doing some excellent work over there with colleagues. And as I mentioned, you can go to that keynote event, Responding to the Challenges of Climate Change. If you Google that, you will find it. And it also features Verity Morgan-Schmidt, uh, Associate Professor Lee Skerritt and Professor Frank Dunshay, as well as Professor Richard Eckard. So uh, we'll be looking at a range of issues in the frame of climate change, particularly around uh, ecosystems and farming systems and agriculture. So what a, a big lineup. It sounds like it's going to be an excellent night and um, I believe light refreshments are provided after. Um, so hope you can head along to that. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.